You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is our hope here at Radio Maria that these messages presented today will truly touch your heart and show you, as Bishop Sheen would say many times, that your life is worth living. Hello, my friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I am very happy uh, during this month of May to uh, feature a few of the recordings that Archbishop Sheen spoke about the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, Last week, I talked about uh, Our Lady of Fatima and, of course, uh, Sheen's um, wisdom of how mothers are made. And uh, I know many of you listening at home had uh, ridden into the station and uh, complimented us on that show. And uh, we can never get enough of Archbishop Sheen, especially when it comes to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, now, I am a little bit of a Sheen expert, and uh, you can always reach me at my website. That's simply bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, we set it up in the year 2012 when we started to uh, feature Archbishop Sheen on the radio. And uh, ever since then, we have about a million uh, visitors a year to our website, uh, Archbishop Sheen's very popular, and on the website you can listen to hundreds of his audio audio recordings, his um, television shows. We've tried to archive as much as we could, and of course everything's free, and everybody loves a free website uh, where you can enjoy Bishop Sheen. And uh, again, it's just this labor of love, and especially, again, Sheen's love for the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, it is the month of May, and we do spend, hopefully, an extra bit of time in our busy schedules honoring the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, so, again, let's uh, be good children, be good children especially. And so this first reflection I want to share with you is... Uh, talk that Fulton Sheen gave in the 50s on his television series, Life is Worth Living. Uh, it's entitled Women Who Do Not Fail. And, uh, you know, you think right away, um, I'm sure many of the men listening might be saying, hey, what about us men? And uh, But Sheen, the way he phrases things and gets about um, to teaching us, uh, he sometimes has to get our attention. And he does with this title, women who do not fail. And so I won't give away too much of it. I'll just let you enjoy this. And so as I said last week and the week before, everyone just sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives a talk entitled, Women Who Do Not Fail. Please enjoy. Friends, 
Since our subject this evening is women who do not fail, perhaps we are entitled to tell the oldest story in the world about women and against them. The story is about Adam after the fall of man. He was out walking one day with his two boys, Cain and Abel, and they passed the wreck and the ruin of the once beautiful Garden of Paradise. Adam looked in rather wistfully, pulled the two boys to himself, and then said, Boys, that's where your mother ate us out of house and home. <laughs> then as the centuries went on, man found it rather difficult to be without a woman. G.K. Chesterton could hardly keep an engagement without his wife. One time he sent a telegram to her that read, I'm in Manchester, dear. Where ought I be? The level of any civilization is always the level of its womanhood. And the reason is, when we know something, we always bring it down to our own level. That is why we have to explain things to children, by bringing it down uh, to the level of their minds. But when we love something, we always have to go out to meet it. For example, if we love music, we have to meet the demands of music. We study foreign language, we have to follow its law. Even if we study ping pong, we have to meet its requirements, too. Now, inasmuch as woman is loved, it follows that the nobler a woman is, the nobler man will have to be to be deserving of that love. That is why the level of any civilization is always the level of its womanhood. And women who do not fail can be broken down into three different categories. Those that cover, first of all, the women who do not fail in the social, political, and economic order. Secondly, women who do not fail in the home. And thirdly, women who do not fail in their preservation of spiritual values for civilization. First of all, women who do not fail in the social, political, and economic order. That immediately brings up this question. Does professional life harden a woman? It is sometimes asserted that it does. This is not true. There's nothing in professional life to harden any woman. Does it happen, however, that women in professional life sometimes do become hard? Yes, but that is due to other factors. A woman becomes hard only when she loses an opportunity to manifest those specifically feminine qualities sympathy and kindness and tenderness. Every woman in the world was made to be a mother, either physically or spiritually. And here we're not talking of physical motherhood. We're speaking of spiritual motherhood. A woman in professional life is happy when she has an occasion to be feminine, 
A man is the guardian of nature, but a woman is the custodian of life. Therefore, in whatever she does, she has to have some occasion to be kind and merciful to others. She cannot look at a limping dog. She cannot look at a at a flower that is has a broken stem without her heart and her mind and her hands. Going out to these things as if to bear witness that she was appointed by God as the very guardian, the custodian of life. The woman who does not fail in professional life is the woman, therefore, who manifests this feminine quality of what we will call equity. There's a world of difference between law and equity. Law is concerned with rules, with exactness, with justice. Equity, there are not many more courts of equity. The world used to be full of courts of equity. Equity is concerned with the circumstances that escape law. With extenuating circumstances, excuses for action. Equity always finds some reason for not being too strict and too rigorous. And it used to be as... Henry Adams pointed out in that great work of his on Mont-Saint-Michel, there used to be a reverence for all of the ladies of equity. He tells the story of the Cathedral of Chartres. And he pictures on one side of this great cathedral magnificent windows that were put up by one of the great families of France, the family of Blanche of Castile. And then on the other side of this cathedral were another set of windows that were put up by the family of Pierre Dreux. They almost seemed to be carrying on the civil war across the vault of that cathedral. And Henry Adams said, there on the main altar, there stood the statue of Our Lady of Equity, listening, as it were, to the disputes, but with mercy and kindness and tenderness, symbolized by the holding of a babe in her arms. She was reconciling the conflicting parties. And if a woman does not have an opportunity in her working hours between nine and five to manifest those feminine qualities of tenderness and meekness and gentleness, then she will have to find occasion afterwards. That is to say, from five o'clock on. Then she keeps normal. Then she keeps feminine. Then she keeps happy. I was thinking the other day why we have such a very happy office. I think the reason is that everybody who is there has an opportunity, though they're doing somewhat the same work that is done in every other great office in America, typing, mailing letters, receiving letters, and the like. They're happy because they, they know that everything they do is associated with helping, as we did last year, 63 million sick and orphans and aged and lepers throughout the world. It's a wonderful sensation to enter into any kind of work and to realize that you know that mankind is better simply because you made some contribution, even in a commercial way. Women of this kind are always happy. Here are the women who do not fail.
And then there's the second type of woman who does not fail, and that is the mother. Here we speak of physical motherhood. The mother and the wife. Every mother is the bearer of God's gifts to man. She adds a new dimension to the love of husband and wife. She does most in the production of what is actually the mutual incarnation of the love of husband and wife, namely a child. And then there comes mothercraft or the teaching of obedience to children. We hardly ever hear of obedience anymore in our modern world. And yet, obedience is the condition of wisdom. And mothers who do not fail to be mothers always teach their children wisdom through obedience. Now, how was that done? Well, take a scientist. A scientist, if he's ever to know nature, has to sit passively before it. He does not give nature its laws. He says to nature, here I am sitting before you. You teach me. I will learn from you. To just the extent that he is obedient, he is wise about the laws of nature. And then when he has the laws of nature in his own mind, then he can convert them into technical power into the progress of civilization. And so it is with a child. When a child is obedient, he learns wisdom. Not only the wisdom that comes from the experience of parents, but the wisdom that comes from the moral and religious training they give their children, but also the wisdom that comes from tradition. For the family is that which perpetuates the tradition. When the child has finally acquired that wisdom by obedience, then later on, he can use that wisdom for his own perfection and out of his own freedom, but he has to obey first. And the real mother who does not fail is in relationship to her child like a wheat field is in relationship to a grain of wheat. That grain of wheat is normal. It's sane. Why? Because it's rooted, fixed in tradition. It's in communion with the earth and communion with the sun and the stars and the rain. And if you take that grain of wheat out of that field before it is ripe, it requires an independence which is its death. And so it is with a child. When a child is uprooted from the wisdom and the tradition and the love and the obedience of a home, the child is like that grain of wheat that has been pulled up, unripe. And he begins to acquire an importance which actually does not have, because he's not yet ripe. He's not yet wise with obedience. And because there are so many children in our modern world that have been uprooted without mothers of that particular kind, they insist on speaking 
to their elders before they have learned. They are asked to speak on international and social problems before they have learned that great wisdom that comes from obedience and a knowledge of tradition. They command before they have learned to obey. The mother who does not fail. Setting certain limitations for her children, the limitations of love, finds the children happy. Just as a child is happy playing in a rock at sea when there's a wall around the sea. He has some roots. Mothers of this kind teach the children this kind of obedience are the mothers who will raise the great citizens for a great America of tomorrow. And then there is the third. And they are the women who preserve the great spiritual values for civilization. It is rather difficult to tell precisely everyone in a complete way just what they do for the world. But there must be someone in the world who will preserve ideals. So that there will be always be ideals to which every man can look when he loves a woman. And they are those women who dedicate and consecrate themselves in virginal lives to the love of God. They are like soldiers. Who does most to preserve patriotism in a nation? It is not the politician who talks about the country. It is not the dramatist who writes about it. Those who do most to preserve the ideals of patriotism in a nation are the soldiers on battlefields who are prepared to die if need be in order to manifest to other citizens that other values are unnecessary, that other values are unimportant compared to the great love of country. How should there not be women who will do for love what soldiers do for patriotism? Should there not be some women who will love divine love so deeply and so profoundly that they will sacrifice all lesser loves in order to preserve for a weak and sinful and possibly sex-minded world the real understanding of love. They keep it pure. We can readily understand why any young woman, for example, should love a human heart 
decays. It seems very hard for some to understand why anyone should love the divine heart. Everybody can understand why anyone should love the spark. There are very few who understand why anyone should love the flame. Perhaps we could make it clear in an example. Here's a rose. This rose has its own father, its own mother, its own hopes and aspirations for the future. When there was rain, it had its own tears. When there was sunshine, it had its own smile. And out into the garden there came a hand and plucked up that rose and destroyed it as far as its rose environment was concerned. But there's no injustice done because the hand of man is above the rose and he may use it for his own purposes. So in a human family is a human rose. With his own real father and mother, brothers and sisters, hopes and aspirations for the future, own real laughter and own real tears. And from out high heaven, there comes the hand of the heavenly gardener that reaches down to that young woman and plucks her up. And destroys her life as far as human environment is concerned. There's no injustice done. The hand of man is above the rose and the hand of God is above the soul. And he may solicit a human heart to a perfect love. But you ask, well, what... Favor and blessing ever accrues to the rose that is plucked. Well, this rose that is plucked is touched by human hands. It may even be pressed to human lips. It may even be privileged, too, to lay its crimson head alongside of the lady of love. The rose life is shortened, yes, but what a beautiful life that now begins to lead with man so you all can see it. And so this young human life that is plucked is is put into the vase of consecration, service and love of God and refreshing waters of sanctifying grace are poured on it from day to day. It's human life is shortened, yes, but what a beautiful life begins to lead with God so that all the world may know that here are lovers. Lovers with what Thompson has called a passionless passion. A wild tranquility to be in love with God. These are the women who do not fail. And it is interesting, if you ever noticed it, that in the great crisis, the greatest crisis that ever faced the life of our blessed Lord, there were many instances of men failing, but there was not a single instance of a woman failing. Peter denied. Judas blistered his lips with a kiss. But as regards women, some women solaced him on the way to Calvary. A woman made her way into Pilate's courtroom to plead his case. A woman wiped his face 
on the road to Calvary and became known as Veronica, Veronicon, the true image. And then at the foot of the cross, there were three women. Their names were the same. Their names... Mary. Mary Magdalene, Mary of Cleophas, Mary of Nazareth, the mother of the Savior. They are the three women we described. They symbolize the three. Mary Magdalene is the woman symbolizes those that takes hold of the tangled skeins of a seemingly wrecked and ruined life and weaves out of it the beautiful tapestry of saintliness and holiness and therefore the type of woman who goes into the political, economic, and social order and regenerates the downtrodden and heals the wounds of those who are sick of heart. And then there was Mary of Cleophas, the mother of James, the mother who taught obedience to a son and obedience that was such... But he became obedient even to the wisdom that was the word. And then finally there was Mary the contemplative who left the lights and glamours of the world for the shades and shadows of the cross where saints are made. These are the women who do not fail. And we salute them, we toast them, not as the modern woman, once our superior, now our equal, but we toast them as the great women who never fail. The women who are closest to the cross on Good Friday, and first at the tomb on Easter morn. One of the greatest joys in life is service and love of the poor. Next week we shall talk on social problems, those who create them, those who have solved them, and those who really solve the problem of the poor. Bye now, and God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program... Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my friends, and welcome back here to Bishop Sheen Presents. And I hope you enjoyed that first reflection, simply entitled, Women Who Do Not Fail. And, of course, our good friend Bishop Sheen talks about how the Blessed Virgin Mary never failed. She was always there for the Lord. And uh, we think of that fateful day on Calvary when she stood below him at the foot of the cross and was there right to the end. And she's with us uh, every day also, uh, supporting her children, being there to love us in good times and in bad. And when we think about the Blessed Virgin Mary's uh, great love for her Lord, she wanted to share that with everyone. I think of the very last words that she spoke in sacred scripture uh, at the wedding feast of Cana, and she encouraged us to do whatever he tells us. And I think that would be the Blessed Virgin Mary's words to us today. Do whatever our Blessed Lord tells you. Uh, So she is there to be our strength and our guide. And during this month of May, I hope and pray that we're all uh, increasing our devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, that we're maybe praying an extra rosary or a litany or a novena, uh, but we are doing things. And, uh, of course, last week, many of us celebrated, uh, again, Our Lady of Fatima, uh, the celebrations on May the 13th. And, of course, there's always more reasons to uh, celebrate, and we have very many, 
Marian Feast Day. And, you know, every day can be a day for Mary during the month of May, especially. Uh, it's just we have to make it happen ourselves. I know my good wife and I sometimes will hold an extra party or two uh, during the month of May for the children so that they can have another reason to fall in love with the Blessed Virgin Mary. You know, Archbishop Sheen wrote many books on the Blessed Virgin Mary, and many of you know of his book, The World's First Love, uh, a book he penned in 1952. Uh, But he also penned a book in 1945 called The Seven Words of Jesus and Mary. And in that book, uh, Fulton Sheen uh, describes to us that um, Our Lady, there are so many beautiful similarities between what she said and what our blessed Lord said from the foot of the cross. And I highly recommend that everyone read that book, The Seven Words of Jesus and Mary, because it is all about imitating Jesus. And Mary imitated Jesus. And so as we look upon her life, we will see uh, the connection between our Lord and Our Lady. And next week, I'll unpackage that a little bit more for you. But I wanted to, of course, spend some time now on the Catechism series that Archbishop Sheen penned in 1965, and he took the time to put it to a vinyl recording uh, so that we would have uh, those lessons to enjoy today. And so I'm going to share with you, uh, I'd like to say it's lesson number two in the 50-part series, and this lesson is on conscience. And I I think it's very appropriate for today, especially, that we have to go with our well-formed conscience. But again, Sheen gives it uh, a great uh, emphasis today in this lesson. And so may I invite you once again now just to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives us a catechism lesson on the topic of conscience. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. A man of the theater came to see me a few years ago. And his reason was this. He said that one night after a show, he was talking to a number of theatrical people backstage. And they said to him, You are a Catholic, aren't you? He said, I used to be. But he said, I've done considerable reading in comparative religion, psychology, psychiatry, and metaphysics, and I had to give it up. Nobody could answer my question. Someone said, why don't you go to Bishop Sheen and have him answer your question? So he said, here I am. And I have a number of questions I would like to put to you. And I said to him, now, before you ask a single question, you go back to the hotel where you were living, get rid of that chorus girl you're living with, and then come back and ask the question. He threw up his hands and laughed, and he said, oh, certainly. I'm trying to fool you just like I fool myself. That's the reason. 
I saw him not very long ago. And I said, well, you are still off the track, aren't you? He said, yes, but I have not thrown away the map. Now, here was a perfect example of someone covering up conscience. And it is of conscience that we would speak. For conscience carries on with us a kind of an unbearable repartee. We are very different from the rest of creatures, regardless of how much we insist on similarities. What makes us different is that we can reflect, turn back upon ourselves. No stone can ever turn a part of itself on another part of itself. No page of a book can so completely be absorbed in another page of the book that it understands that page. But we humans, we have the power of looking at ourselves in a kind of a mirror. We can be pleased with ourselves. We can be angry with ourselves. And so it is possible for us to have tensions of all kinds which do not happen to animals. You will never in your life see a rooster with an Oedipus complex. You will never, never see a pig with an Oedipus complex. No animal ever has a complex. Scientists have induced ulcers, indeed in some animals, but they were introduced by humans. The animal left to itself, however, never feels this tension. We do. We feel a tension between what we are and what we ought to be. between the ideal and the fact. We are somewhat like a mountain climber. We see the peak way up at the top to which we're climbing and which we hope to attain. And down below, we see the abyss into which at any time we might fall. Now, why is it that conscience does trouble us this particular way when it does not trouble the rest of creatures? Why is it we try to escape it? Think of how many abnormal ways there are of avoiding it. Sleeping tablets. Alcoholism, these are just a few of the ways of avoiding this unbearable repartee. Then have you ever noticed how pessimistic some people become? 
They are always expecting rain on the day of the picnic. Everything is going to turn out to be a catastrophe. They know it. Why do they take this attitude? Because in their own heart and soul, they know very well that the way they are living and violating their conscience deserves some kind of an unfavorable judgment. And so they bring back that judgment upon themselves and are always awaiting the electric chair. Their judgments are influenced by this pessimistic attitude. Another psychological manifestation of avoidance of conscience is hypercriticism. The neighbor is always wrong. And have you ever noticed the letters that are sent to the newspapers? They begin with, The trouble with my husband is this. I cannot stand my wife because my son is stubborn. And then in the ordinary affairs of life, the poor neighbor never can do anything good. Why this hypercritical attitude? Abraham Lincoln once gave the right answer to it. He was going into a hospital in Alexandria during the Civil War. And at a time when presidents were not well known because Brady had not circulated all of his photographs. And as he went into the hospital, some young man running out bumped into Lincoln sent him sprawling on the floor and shouted at Lincoln, Get out of the way, you big, long, lean, lanky stiff. And Lincoln looked up at him and said, Young man, what's troubling you on the inside? And so with hypercriticism. We are so conscious of a real sense of justice that if we do not right ourselves, we have to be righting everybody else. For example, you cannot go into a room where there are a series of pictures and one of them is two inches awry without straightening out that picture. You want everything in order. We want everything in order except ourselves. Then there are more serious escapes from this unbearable repartee. And in order to let you know that human nature is always active in the same way, let us go back to Shakespeare. In his great tragedy, Macbeth, Shakespeare, long before we had any of the profound findings of psychiatry, described a perfect case of psychosis 
and a perfect case of neurosis. It was Macbeth that had the psychosis. Lady Macbeth, his wife, had the neurosis. You remember the story? In order to attain the throne, Banquo the king was murdered. Conscience bothered Macbeth so much that he developed a psychosis and he began to see the ghost of Banquo. He imagined he saw him seated at a table. The dagger that killed the king was constantly before him. What is this dagger before my eyes? It was just imagination. But the projection of his inner guilt. And then note the great wisdom of Shakespeare in pointing out that whenever there is a revolution against conscience, there will very often come skepticism, doubt, atheism, a complete negation of the philosophy of life. And Macbeth reached a stage where to him life was just a candle. Out, out, brief candle. Life had no meaning. And so the petty pace creeps on from day to day. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools their way to dusty death. I tell you, skepticism, agnosticism, and atheism have not rational foundations. Their foundations are in the moral order. First, there was a revolt against conscience. Then look at Lady Macbeth. Her guilt manifested itself in a neurosis. And the maid said of Lady Macbeth that she washed her hands every quarter of an hour. There was a sense of guilt in her, which she had completely negated. And instead of washing her soul, as she knows she should have done, she projected it to her hands. And her hands were always smeared with blood, it seemed. She said that not all the waters of the seven seas were enough to wash this blood incarnadine from her hand. 
Guilt will out. And one can see it when one knows souls well, so very easily. I was once instructing a young woman, and she had finished on tape and on records, not these, but others which I had made before. She had finished about 15 hours. And after the first instruction on confession, she said to my secretary, I'm finished. No more lessons. I do not want to hear anything about the Catholic Church from now on. My secretary phoned me, and I said, ask her to finish the other three on the subject of confession, and then I will see her. I saw her at the end of the three, and she was in a veritable crisis. She was screaming, shrieking, let me out of here. Let me out of here. I never want to hear anything again about the church after hearing this talk on confession. Well, it took about five minutes to calm her down, and I said, listen, my good girl, There is absolutely no proportion between what you have heard and the way you are acting. So there has to be something else. Do you know what I think is wrong? I think you've had an abortion. He said, yeah. So happy that it was out. Now see how that bad conscience came out? An attack upon confession, the truths of faith. That was not the problem. Very often, we will find that an attack upon religion satisfies for the moment this uneasy conscience. Now, what does this conscience mean? What significance has it for us? Well, conscience is something like the United States government. The United States government is divided into three offices. The legislative, the executive, and the judicial. The legislative... Congress that makes laws. The executive, the president, who witnesses to the conformity of law and action. And finally, the Supreme Court, which judges that conformity. Now, we have all of these inside of us. First of all, we have a Congress. There's a law inside saying, thou shalt, thou shalt not. I might interrupt myself for a moment to define conscience very simply as conscience is that which makes you feel good after. And wrong 
is that which makes you feel bad after. So we have a law. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Where does this law come from? From myself? No, if it did, I could do away with it. If I made it, I could unmake it. Does it come from society? It does not. Because sometimes conscience praises me when society condemns me. And sometimes conscience will condemn me when society praises me. Where does it come from then? If not from myself. Where then does the executive side of conscience come from? It too judges whether or not I have obeyed that law. It says, I was there. I saw you. And though others will say, oh, pay no attention to it, one knows very well that one must. And one also knows the motives that inspired the act. And finally, it judges us. And if, therefore, it praises us for certain actions and we feel somewhat the same happiness and joy that we would from being praised by a father or mother, if we feel the same sadness and unhappiness, that we feel when condemned by a father or a mother, it must be that behind conscience is some person, the divine thou. It is the standard of our life. Most of the mental problems from which people suffer today is due to a mental revolt against this law which is written in their own hearts. And how often, just as soon as people return again to conscience, peace comes back. Life is very, very different. And that is what we are after. Peace of soul. Therefore, this unbearable repartee is only one side of conscience. It is the conscience that tells us when we do wrong, so that we feel on the inside as if we've broken a bone. bone pains because the bone is not where it ought to be. Our conscience troubles us. 
because the conscience is not where it ought to be. And thanks to this power of self-reflection that we have, we can see ourselves in particularly at night. As the poet put it, every atheist is afraid in the dark. And it's a gentle voice saying, you are unhappy. This is not the way. Your freedom is never destroyed. But you feel the sweet summons. And you ask, well, why is it not stronger? It's strong enough if we would listen. And God respects our freedom that he gave us. You perhaps may have seen a painting of Holman Hunt. It is a picture of our blessed Lord standing at an ivy-covered door. A lantern in his hands. And knocking. Holman Hunt was very much criticized for that painting. And the critic said, there was no latch on the outside of the door. That was right. There was no latch on the outside of the door. It was conscience. The door is opened from the inside. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my friends. I want to thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And uh, these two lessons were, uh, I like to say, marvelous, uh, because I always need uh, a refresher course on my catechism. Uh, learning about conscience. And, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, we talked about the philosophy of life and how important that is. But uh, again, do we take our catechism uh, seriously? I think sometimes we take it for granted. We, of course, go to catechism classes or we read a little book, but do we try to live our faith every day? Do we try to grow in our faith, become stronger? And I really encourage you, if you can, to listen to Fulton Sheen's Catechism. Um, you know, download uh, the uh, recordings at your convenience and enjoy them. And uh, you can always find them on my website, bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, there I have an archive of all the uh, audio broadcasts for a number of years now. I've been on the air since 2012. And uh, again, just been very grateful to Radio Maria for uh, inviting me to come and share some of the 
wisdom of Archbishop Sheen, but uh, the website bishopsheentoday.com has, again, hundreds of videos, uh, hundreds of audio recordings, and we even have a book section where you can uh, purchase books, and uh, there's actually even some free downloadable books uh, on the website. So, uh, again, everything Sheen is there. Uh, But I still think this catechism we're going to go through over the next few weeks, I think you'll really enjoy. And so, uh, as Fulton Sheen said, I think it was the year 1949 in the book Peace of Soul, he said, uh, unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. And so it's so important that we save our souls and do what we can to improve our souls. And so uh, studying our faith is a good way to do that. And a good way to uh, save your soul is to ask the Blessed Virgin Mary for help. And so I would encourage you to pray to her to uh, continue to say your rosaries and, of course, uh, read your Bishop Sheen books on Mary. And uh, you're you're on your way to heaven, I'm sure of that. Uh, My dear friends, it has been a great week. And so until next week, I, I bid you adieu and I love the... Uh, beautiful passage from the book of Numbers that I try to share uh, at the end of my program. And so, until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the good Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. We'll see you next week. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.